You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. Thanks for downloading episode 44 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast. Last week, we closed the action at Philippi in western Virginia with the Confederates' panicky retreat south to Beverly. A few weeks after that Union victory, dubbed the Philippi Races by the Northern Press, news came that the hapless Confederate commander, Colonel George Porterfield, had been relieved of command and replaced by Brigadier General Robert S. Garnett. The 41-year-old Garnett was a West Point graduate and Mexican War veteran, and before resigning his commission to go with Virginia, he was a highly regarded officer in the old U.S. Army. As soon as Garnett arrived on the scene, he immediately set to work reorganizing and building up the Confederate force around Beverly. In response, the Union commander, Major General George McClellan, himself moved into the field, coming over from Ohio with some fresh regiments and linking up with his men already in the Grafton, Philippi area. On June 23, 1861, McClellan arrived in Grafton to take personal command of the fight against the rebels. He had never before commanded so much as a squad in combat, but McClellan, supremely confident, had no doubt at all he would be successful in this campaign and drive the Confederates from northwestern Virginia. We thought that since McClellan considered himself God's gift to the Union war effort, he deserved his own special intro music rather than the plain old usual uh, drum roll that we use. So that's what this is. George Brenton McClellan was born on December 3, 1826, into one of the leading families of Philadelphia. He was the son of a prominent medical doctor, and he enjoyed the advantages of a privileged upbringing. McClellan started his education at the prep school for the University of Pennsylvania, and then, when he was only 13, he was enrolled in the university itself. After two years of classes at Penn, where he displayed an intellect just short of outright genius, the 15-year-old McClellan was nominated to West Point. Back when he was just 10, he had first voiced his dream of attending West Point, so he was thrilled when the Academy's board waived the minimum age requirement and admitted him. McClellan graduated second in the West Point class of 1846, a group that included 21 others destined to become Civil War generals, including a serious young Virginian named Thomas Jonathan Jackson. The war with Mexico afforded the West Point class of 1846 
an immediate opportunity to test their skills on the battlefield. McClellan, commissioned as a second lieutenant in the Corps of Engineers upon graduation, served under Winfield Scott and took part in Scott's epic march on Mexico City in 1847. McClellan mostly found himself drawing maps, but then in August he at last found himself in the midst of combat at Contreras on the outskirts of the Mexican capital. He was breveted to first lieutenant for his conduct during that action, and then he distinguished himself again a month later during the fighting at Molino del Rey and Chapultepec, for which he was breveted to captain. We've mentioned brevet ranks before this, so maybe we should offer a quick explanation of what they were. A brevet was a promotion for bravery on the battlefield or for outstanding service. The promotion in rank usually came without an increase in pay and was of an honorary or temporary nature. In other words, it didn't reflect the officer's actual or permanent rank. This got especially confusing during the Civil War when Union Army officers could hold actual and brevet ranks in both the regular army and the volunteers. For example, by the end of the Civil War, a fellow named McKenzie was a brevet major general of volunteers, an actual permanent rank brigadier general of volunteers, a brevet brigadier general in the regular army, and an actual regular army captain. During the Civil War, things were a lot simpler for the Confederacy, because although their regulations provided for brevets, in actual practice the Confederate Army did not award them to its officers. Now, brevets may still not make much sense to most of you, but just think of it this way. Instead of giving you a medal, they gave you an honorary rank. So, although McClellan emerged from the Mexican War as a brevet captain, his actual permanent rank in the Army was still second lieutenant. Well, after the conclusion of the war with Mexico, McClellan taught engineering at West Point from 1848 to 1851, and then he was engaged in survey and construction projects, including the building of Fort Delaware. He then transferred from the engineers to the cavalry, where he served on the western frontier under Major Randolph Marcy. In 1854, the 27-year-old McClellan met Marcy's beautiful 18-year-old daughter, Ellen. McClellan instantly fell in love, and despite having Ellen's father and mother on his side, he failed to win her hand, because it seems Ellen herself was smitten with another dashing young cavalry officer who just happened to have been McClellan's roommate at West Point, Lieutenant Ambrose Powell Hill. In April 1855, the Secretary of War, a fellow from Mississippi named Jefferson Davis, tapped McClellan to be part of an official three-man commission going to Europe. The trio of Army officers visited the battlefields of the Crimean Peninsula where Britain, France, and the Turks were at war against Russia. The commission's assignment was to discover just how modern European nations fought their wars, but in the end, the men returned to the United States with little of real value to report as a result of their tour of observation. But McClellan's participation in the tour, as well as the fact that Jefferson Davis had picked him over other officers, impressed people and marked him as a rising star in the Army. After his return from Europe, where he was inspired by a military saddle that he saw there, McClellan altered its design slightly, and soon the McClellan saddle was adopted by the U.S. Army and became the cavalry standard right up to the 20th century. 
Later, he also introduced the shelter tent, popularly known as the pup tent, to the army, and he translated and edited the French bayonet and drill manuals for American use. Confident in his own rising star, and considering himself an expert in all things military, McClellan didn't hesitate to lecture Secretary of War Davis on the proper organization of two new cavalry regiments that Davis was establishing. Well, Jefferson Davis was never a man to suffer criticism gladly, and while before this he'd been impressed with McClellan, now Davis was irritated by the young officer's impertinence. The two men exchanged testy letters, and before the end of 1856, McClellan resigned his commission and left the army. George McClellan was far from the only officer to resign from the peacetime army and use his engineering experience to pursue a more lucrative civilian career. But McClellan's was probably the most successful such story. In January 1857, McClellan was hired by the Illinois Central Railroad, and within two years he was vice president of the company. In the course of his work, he became acquainted with an attorney named Abraham Lincoln, who, off and on since 1853, had been engaged by the railroad to do legal work. In his memoirs, McClellan recalled crossing paths with Lincoln, quote, In out-of-the-way county seats where some important case was being tried, in front of a stove listening to the unceasing flow of anecdotes from his lips, he was never at a loss, and I could never quite make up my mind how many of them he really heard before and how many he invented on the spur of the moment. End quote. In 1860, McClellan left the Illinois Central to become superintendent and president of the Eastern Division of the Ohio and Mississippi Railroad with a spectacular salary of $10,000 a year. Around this time, he also resumed his pursuit of Ellen Marcy. Miss Marcy, however, still had eyes only for A.P. Hill, and seems to have already been informally engaged to him. But McClellan's renewed pursuit of their daughter moved Major and Mrs. Marcy to launch a full-press parental campaign of disapproval against Hill's suit, and in the end, Ellen accepted McClellan's proposal. The two were married in New York City in May 1860. In August 1860, the newly married couple moved to Cincinnati, where McClellan assumed his responsibilities with the Ohio and Mississippi. But the former Army star saw war clouds gathering on the horizon. He later wrote, quote, So strongly was I convinced that war would ensue that when, in the autumn of 1860, I leased a house in Cincinnati for the term of three years, I insisted upon a clause in the lease releasing me from the obligation in the event of war. End quote. And in the last show, we told how, when the war did come in April 1861, the governors of three northern states, Ohio, New York, and Pennsylvania, sought to hang general stars on McClellan's shoulders. McClellan seemed to indicate that he'd like to serve his home state of Pennsylvania, but before he could receive an official offer from the Keystone State, Ohio's Republican governor, William Dennison, met with him, and won him over. That meeting between Governor Dennison and McClellan took place on April 23rd, and after accepting the governor's offer, McClellan immediately went to work. By the first days of May, he had his new command firmly in hand. 
With tireless work and attention to detail, McClellan had brought order to Ohio's mobilization, and the mobs of eager volunteers that streamed into camp were being drilled and trained and transformed into an army worthy of the name. When he assumed high command at the start of the war, George Brenton McClellan brought a massive ego with him. And to some degree, one can hardly blame him. Up to that point in his life, he had gone from success to success. And it's hard to argue with the observation that at the beginning of the Civil War, no one's star, north or south, rose higher or faster than McClellan's. When the Confederates bombarded Fort Sumter, he was a civilian. Six months later, he would be General-in-Chief of the Federal Army. The intensely ambitious McClellan perhaps always had his eye on rising to become General-in-Chief of the Federal Army. In June 1861, when he arrived in Grafton to take personal command of the fight against the rebels in northwestern Virginia, he had already been given command of the Department of the Ohio and elevated in rank to Major General in the regular Army, so that he stood second only to old Winfield Scott. McClellan must have realized that the first obstacle to sending his rising star even higher was located there in western Virginia. It was that small Confederate army, consisting mostly of Virginia and Georgia troops, commanded by Brigadier General Robert Selden Garnett. Garnett had most recently served on the staff of Robert E. Lee, who, by now, with the nationalization of Virginia's forces into the Confederacy, was acting as an advisor to Jefferson Davis. Lee would have liked to keep Garnett by his side, but Lee recognized that the shaky state of affairs in northwestern Virginia after the debacle at Philippi called for a steady and reliable officer, so Lee sent Garnett. Garnett, a native Virginian, graduated 27th of 52 in the West Point class of 1841, the same class as his cousin, Richard Brooke Garnett. And just a footnote, but that cousin, Dick Garnett, will also become a Confederate general and will die at the head of his brigade during Pickett's charge at Gettysburg in July 1863. Right. So Robert Garnett, known to his friends as Bob, served in the Dragoons and also the artillery after graduating from West Point, and then before the Mexican War, he went back to the academy to teach tactics. During the war, Garnett served as Zachary Taylor's aide-de-camp, and during the fighting in northern Mexico, he received two brevet promotions. Garnett remained on Taylor's staff until the general resigned from the Army in 1849. Beginning in 1849, Garnett served a three-year stint in the infantry. In 1852, he was transferred back to West Point, where he served as Commandant of Cadets. He served in that position for three years during the superintendency of Robert E. Lee. When his tour at West Point was completed in 1855, Garnett was sent to the Pacific Northwest, where he commanded several expeditions against hostile Indians. Garnett was stationed in Oregon in 1858 when his wife and infant son took ill and died in September of that year. He requested and was granted leave to take their bodies back east for burial. Crushed by grief, Garnett then requested a year's leave to travel in Europe. He left in October 1859, received an extension while abroad, and did not start his return journey to America until late March 1861. 
Upon his return to the States, he requested yet another leave and bided his time until he could determine which course Virginia would take. Upon the secession of his home state, Garnett resigned from the Army on April 30, 1861. Garnett served as Robert E. Lee's adjutant general, and together the two men set Virginia's military on a war footing. And then, as we've already said, after the embarrassment at Philippi, Lee gave Garnett a field command, sending his trusted subordinate to northwestern Virginia to stabilize the situation. But from the moment he took over his new command on June 14th, Garnett faced great difficulties. After arriving, he wrote to Lee, saying, quote, I found 23 companies of infantry in a miserable condition as to arms, clothing, equipment, instruction, and discipline, end quote. And in spite of Lee's best efforts to procure supplies, weapons, and ammunition for him, Garnett was chronically short of everything he needed right up until he was attacked by McClellan's forces the second week of July. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. After his arrival on the scene, Garnett managed to build up his force to about 6,000 men. With them, he planned to block McClellan's advance at two key points near Beverly. To the north, there was Laurel Hill, which commanded the road between Grafton and Lewisburg. And then the second spot Garnett chose to defend was on the western side of Rich Mountain, on the Staunton-Parkersburg Turnpike. But those two positions were nine miles apart, so Garnett was forced to split his force between them. Garnett kept 4,500 men at Laurel Hill under his personal command, and he sent Lieutenant Colonel John Pegram with 1,300 men to hold Rich Mountain and block the turnpike. From these commanding defensive positions, Garnett hoped to thwart the coming Union offensive. Upon learning the disposition of the Confederate forces, McClellan drew up a plan that called for a brigade under Brigadier General Thomas A. Morris to make a demonstration at Laurel Hill, while McClellan himself led three brigades against the enemy force holding Rich Mountain. On July 6th, McClellan ordered Morris to advance from Philippi toward Laurel Hill. 
The following day, McClellan moved forward from Buchanan, and on July 9th, he reached Roaring Fork Flats, two miles west of Camp Garnett, which was Pegram's fortified camp on the western side of Rich Mountain. Although Rich Mountain wasn't particularly high, the rugged terrain was very steep and was forested and covered with dense underbrush, and a reconnaissance conducted on July 10th by Lieutenant Orlando Poe of McClellan's staff confirmed that a frontal assault on the Confederates would be costly. As McClellan pondered how best to crack the enemy defensive position, one of his brigade commanders, Brigadier General William Stark Rosecrans, learned from a local Unionist that there was a way to slip around the Confederates' left flank. That local, David Hart, who said his family's farm was located at the summit of the mountain, told Rosecrans there was a cattle path along the south slope of Rich Mountain. And so around 10 o'clock on the night of July 10th, Rosecrans came to McClellan and informed him about this piece of intelligence. Rosecrans proposed to take his brigade and, guided by Hart, proceed by the path and strike the Confederates by surprise in the rear, whereupon the rest of McClellan's force would move forward and assail the enemy in front. McClellan hesitated to approve such a risky maneuver, but when his father-in-law and unofficial chief of staff, Major Marcy, urged him to endorse Rosecrans' proposal, McClellan reluctantly agreed to the plan. And so with Hart as his guide, Rosecrans began his flanking march at 4 a.m. on the morning of July 11th. He had his four regiments, all three-month outfits, and a small cavalry detachment, the whole totaling about 1,200 men. After a difficult march through rough terrain and pouring rain, Rosecrans and his men, guided by David Hart, neared the summit of the mountain. Meanwhile, McClellan had got cold feet and sent a courier out to recall the flanking force. The courier, however, took a trail around the northern half of Rich Mountain, and after disregarding a warning by Union pickets that enemy soldiers were up ahead, the courier was captured. Unfortunately for Rosecrans, the message the courier carried alerted Pegram to the fact that he was being flanked. But fortunately for Rosecrans, while the message alerted Pegram to the fact he was being flanked, it did not tell him on which side of the mountain he was being flanked. Since the courier was captured on the north side of the mountain, Pegram naturally assumed that the Union force was making its way around his right flank, and he reacted accordingly. But Pegram guessed wrong, because having made their way around the south side of the mountain, Rosecrans and his men came up behind the Confederate left flank. About 2 p.m., the Union flanking force, with the 10th Indiana in the lead, ran into about 300 Confederates that Pegram had posted at the Hart Place, which indeed was located on the turnpike where it crossed the summit of the mountain. And so after guiding the Union force to the top of the mountain, David Hart suddenly found himself in the middle of a battle on his family farm. And just a side note, David Hart would enlist and join the 10th Indiana, the regiment that spearheaded the Union attack at Rich Mountain. Hart served as a commissary sergeant, but sadly he died of measles and pneumonia in March 1862 at Nashville, Tennessee. There at the Hart farm on July 11, 1861, the Confederate detachment, although greatly outnumbered, still managed to repulse several Union assaults before Rosecrans finally overwhelmed their position. When Pegram had heard that firing from the fight taking place in his rear, he'd ordered two more companies to the Hart farm, but it had proved too little too late. 
Rosecrans' brigade finally broke through the Confederate force defending the top of the mountain, and the beaten enemy broke and fled, some westward toward Camp Garnett, and others eastward toward Beverly. But by 6 p.m. the battle was over. But Rosecrans' force was exhausted from the fight and from their earlier climb up the mountain, so we planned to spend the night right there where the turnpike crossed the top of the mountain and then attack Camp Garnett from the rear the next morning. Union losses in the fighting that day were 12 killed and 62 wounded. Reports of Confederate casualties are a bit sketchy, but seem to have been at least 33 killed, 39 wounded, and over 20 captured. By the end of the day on July 11th, with Rosecrans in his rear and McClellan to his front, Pegram's options at that point were limited. After some deliberation, he left half his men at Camp Garnett and took the rest up the mountain to recapture the summit, but the effort moving uphill just to get into position exhausted the men, and Pegram realized an assault would be suicidal. So he placed another officer in charge of that force, with orders to make their way eastward to Beverly as best they could, and then Pegram himself started back to Camp Garnett to get the rest of his men. Several times he lost his way in the rain and darkness and suffered a painful fall from his horse, but he persevered and finally staggered into Camp Garnett at 11.30 that night. Pegram, knowing the jaws of the Union trap would snap shut on Camp Garnett the next morning, decided the men still in the Confederate camp needed to move out at once. They would head north, moving cross-country, and attempt to link up with Garnett at Laurel Hill. But the march started that night, over extremely difficult terrain and bad weather, proved too much for Pegram's men. After two days of marching with no rations, basically wandering lost in the wilderness, his men were on the point of collapse, so Pegram saw no choice but to surrender on the 13th with about 550 officers and men. And we probably need to backtrack a bit and explain that the fact that Pegram was able to escape from Camp Garnett at all was due to the fact that McClellan had done precisely nothing on the 11th while Rosecrans was battling up at the top of the mountain. McClellan and everyone else with him there at Roaring Fork Flats had clearly heard the sound of the fighting going on at the summit, and the waiting Union soldiers readied themselves to advance across Roaring Creek and storm the enemy position. But to their amazement, McClellan never gave the order to move forward in support of Rosecrans. This inexcusable inaction caused no small amount of anger and frustration among the officers and men there with McClellan. According to the diary of the colonel of an Ohio regiment, quote, The general halted a few paces from our line and sat on his horse listening to the guns, apparently in doubt as to what to do. And as he sat there with indecision stamped on every line of his countenance, the battle grew fiercer in the enemy rear, end quote. And so, while McClellan dithered there at the base of the mountain, Rosecrans took the summit and won the battle. When McClellan composed his official report and sent it on to Washington, he downplayed Rosecrans' role in the operation while making it seem as if he himself had been the sole architect of the bold plan to outflank the enemy. And, of course, he failed to mention how he had sat twiddling his thumbs all day down at the base of the mountain. 
McClellan's purpose in misrepresenting the facts and sending such a report was obviously to make himself into the hero of the Battle of Rich Mountain, and in this he succeeded brilliantly, raising his stock in the eyes of the President and Winfield Scott, so that when McDowell is beaten at Manassas on July 21st, Scott and Lincoln, the very day after that disastrous defeat, will tap McClellan to come to Washington and assume command of the main Union Army. As for Garnett, the Union victory at Rich Mountain meant his position at Laurel Hill was no longer tenable, so on July 12th he was forced to start a withdrawal from there when he learned of Pegram's defeat. As Garnett's men retreated through the Cheat River Valley, they were pressed by pursuing Federals from Morris's command. On July 13th, at one backcountry crossing point near Corrick's Ford, Garnett and an aide waited with a small rear guard for the Yankees to appear. When the enemy, soldiers of the 7th Indiana, did appear on the far bank, the two Confederate officers on horseback made conspicuous targets, and within moments Garnett was struck in the head by a bullet. He tumbled to the ground, and although Garnett's aide desperately tried to get his mortally wounded commander back onto his horse, it was hopeless, and the distraught officer was forced to flee the approaching Union soldiers along with the rest of the Confederate rear guard. The Yankees reached Garnett just as he was drawing his last breaths. Colonel Dumont, leading the 7th Indiana, had served alongside Garnett in Mexico, and when he reached his old friend's body lying there beside the water, he was overcome with anguish, crying out, Poor Bob Garnett. And so Robert Garnett was the first general officer on either side to fall in combat. The Confederate general and artillery expert E. Porter Alexander would say of him, quote, had he lived, I am sure he would have been one of our great generals. End quote. Garnett himself must have sensed some foreshadowing of his fate, for prior to leaving Richmond, after he learned that he was being assigned to command the Confederate defense of Northwest Virginia, he had written prophetically, They have not given me an adequate force. I can do nothing. They have sent me to my death. And so the Battle of Rich Mountain and Garnett's death at Corrick's Ford secured Western Virginia for the Union. Later that summer, a Unionist convention meeting at Wheeling would create the new state of Kanawha out of the western counties of the Old Dominion. The state was later renamed West Virginia and formally entered the Union in June 1863. But that's a story for another episode. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is actually two magazine-backed issues. If you're interested in learning more about these operations in northwestern Virginia, you can check out an article by Albert Castle titled, West Virginia, 1861, A Tale of a Goose, a Dog, and a Fox, in Volume 7, Number 7 of North and South Magazine. That's the November 2004 issue. And that article has some really great maps with it. And then most of the Volume 10, Number 6 issue of Blue and Gray magazine is devoted to the fighting there in Western Virginia in 1861. And that's the August 1993 issue of Blue and Gray. As always, you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com. And then as we wrap things up, we want to be sure to thank Michael H. and Christine W. for their donations last week. 
Uh, Christine, we're glad you enjoyed the episodes on Fort Sumter. And then just today, slipping in under the wire for this episode was a donation from Brian L., a friend of the podcast in Illinois. So thanks, Brian. And last but not least, we want to thank all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Up next, before we get to any more fighting, we're going to devote a couple of episodes to talking about how the war was fought, at least on land, that is. So we'll talk about infantry, cavalry, and artillery. Oh my. So that'll be next time. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.